Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Friday, June 23rd, 2003 edition of Memo by Gaia Legal. My name is Jackie, and welcome to Cancer Season. Cancer, the archetype, just generally speaking, home, family, children. So for today, um, in the spirit of going with the flow and, you know, discarding the old and stepping into this new new season <laughs> of the Zodiac, if we put Cancer on the Ascendant, meaning Cancer in the first house, I would like to begin with discarding, <laughs> discarding my paper, um, my law review comment on education malpractice into the podcast universe, just because it can be helpful for people, anybody who has a child or a student in the education system, by education system, defining home, uh, homeschool, private school, public school, pre-K, below pre-K, all the way up to um, postgraduate education. So any, any type of education system, what are ways where you can get justice and compensation for students and the parents of the students? And then also touching upon mostly alternatives to education, mal to mal to education malpractice, because spoiler alert, education malpractice is not a viable claim, even though medical malpractice is. And I touch upon that at the beginning of my comment. So just a little bit of background about this comment and where it came from. So I was on the Houston Law Review. Uh, I forget the board number, but it was a senior articles ed editor. I think it was Board 58. So Board 58, Houston Law Review. Um, I wrote one to Law Review because I was a transfer student. I transferred, I was pregnant with my first child, Gabby. And uh, while I was pregnant, I wrote on to Law Review and um, I had Gabby in October. I was working on this comment while I was pregnant with her eight, nine months. I had her in October, finished the comment in December, and then revised it uh, in the spring. So um, and don't worry, like when the baby's little, they sleep so much. So I, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was pulling up to midnight every night, but you know, it got done and it was, I didn't really have anything else to focus on except baby and, and this. So it was kind of like, um, I don't know, my getaway for when I, when I need the break from, from Gabby. And I just, I was also a Teach for America Corps member, also admin, administrative school. I also founded schools. And I just think like, you know, to put the past to past, I just want this information out there because it could be really helpful. And I spent a lot of hours researching this on, in areas that people may not research. So it's all in one nice little place for you to um, reference here. So there's three sections, this podcast. I was, I think in a, in a normal world, and by normal, I mean, usually I like to keep the podcast 10 to 20 minutes. Um, I would probably break this up into three to five episodes. But I think, you know, given the nature of the topic, I just want to put it all out here in one episode. And, you know, if I get feedback, want to hear more about a certain section in depth, whatever, then I can make different episodes later on. But I think just... One episode, Friday, June 23rd, and then next week going into actually how to um, launch different schools. So how to start your own private school, be it religious or non-religious, how to start your own homeschool, what are the requirements that homeschoolers have. It's a state issue, um, kind of the current state of homeschooling and the pushback, especially at Harvard Law School, family law professor, um, focusing on not just parental rights, but child rights, where the rights of the child in a homeschool situation. 
And then of course, public school, public school, um, we don't have education malpractice, but what are the ways that you can address grievances in the public school from like low key, you know, I have an issue with the teacher, um, special needs situations with IEPs and so on and so forth, all the way up to filing lawsuits. A lot of the um, lawsuits in education are First Amendment. Um, we all have a lot of administrative remedies, meaning, you know, go to the Texas Education Agency, which I worked in the Texas Education Agency as well. Um, you can go to the Texas Education Agency and spoiler alert, one of the best ways to remedy something in the school without getting into litigation is attacking teacher certification, um, which that's the exact department I worked in or, you know, some sort of financing with the school. So if you um, use a civil rights claim that will attack the school's financing, which if the school doesn't get money, they're not going to exist. So then people will move. So that's going to be next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then end on pregnancy discrimination, which I also personally experienced when I was a student in law school. So I have a lot of personal experience in this area because not only I have, you know, I taught special needs students with IEPs. I have a sister who's special needs. Um, I also, you know, I was pregnant in law school, so I experienced that end of the quote accommodation special needs aspect of it, but I was also a teacher, an administrator. I've seen this at all different like levels. I know this, how this feels like as a teacher. I know this, how, how it feels like as a policy creator. I know how this feels like as an assistant principal, instructional coach, instructional dean, etc. So I think we'll cover that all in one week and then we'll move on to the next topic in cancer season, which in my go with the flow right now, I will figure it out when the time comes. So here we go, justice and compensation for students and their parents, alternatives to education malpractice. So point number one is medical malpractice is a recognized claim in the United States and education malpractice is not. But first, like what is malpractice? Malpractice is a tort claim, a tort claim of negligence. So there are different types of tort claims. There's intentional torts. So battery is an intentional tort. You act with intent to cause um, touching to the person of another and the touching was not wanted. You invaded their, um, their space, their, their, their right of privacy to their own body, to have um, their own autonomy to the body. And that is an intentional tort. And intentional torts, um, they have defenses to them as well. So like, for example, technically speaking, when a doctor performs surgery on you, that is a battery, technically speaking. Um, however, there is a privilege to that because in a battery, you've consented to that, that behavior, right? So when you go to the doctor's office, you're signing lots of consents because, yeah, technically, you know, <laughs> the doctor's cutting you open. And in any other situation other than the medical um, situation, if someone to just like go down the street and cut you open, obviously, that would just be not only a tort, but also a crime. But when you are in the medical setting, you know, there's consent and all these different things. So there, you know, there's this case, like a very basic law school case where I think um, a doctor, they were, uh, they had permission to conduct the surgery on like, don't call me. I'm just, I remember the, the general of the like general aspects of the story, but like the doctor was 
able to perform surgery on the right ear. When he got in there, he's like, no, actually, it's the left ear. So during the surgery, while the patient was asleep, he went and performed surgery on the left ear instead. And, you know, the problem was fixed, but the patient did not give consent for surgery on the left ear, only the right ear. And because the doctor violated their right of choice to what to do with their body, the doctor was held liable for a battery. So, um, but no assault because assault means that you're anticipating a harm to the body and the patient was asleep. So no assault, just a battery. Uh, and that's intentional torts. On the other hand, you have strict liability torts. So you see a lot of strict liability in environmental law where you have, um, for example, like the spilling of a toxin under the groundwater or whatever. The strict liability, just the fact that it's there um, is enough to, to hold you liable for that. So that's environmental law. I'm not going to get into that and like money the waters. So you have intentional torts, strict liability, and then you have this middle kind of ground, which is called negligence, which probably creates the bulk of tort claims. If you get in a car accident, you see all your personal injury attorneys, they are experts in negligence. You have a duty to operate your vehicle in a specific way as a reasonable, prudent person under the circumstances. When you're texting on your cell phone, when you are um, going over the speed limit, that's you know, negligence per se. You're negligent per se because the speed limit says 45 and you're going 50. So that is negligence by statute. And that automatically says that you breached the duty. You did not act as a reasonable person under the circumstances. And when you fail to act as a reasonable person and that causes injury to others, say a car accident, and that injury was direct and proximate cause of their injury. So direct cause means that you, in fact, you know, hit their car. Yes, a direct cause and proximate cause is more of a policy decision. Was this in the zone of foreseeable risk? Well, yeah, if you're texting on your cell phone, if you're driving down the street uh, over the speed limit, that's a foreseeable risk um, that you should have with you are, you know, you should have known about. And you therefore are going to be held liable for damage to the other person, not just to their property, which is their car, but also to their body and so on and so forth. Sometimes in tort claims, when you have personal injury claims, if the conduct, the, the, the behavior you engaged in was so egregious, you can also be assessed punitive damages in certain situations. Punitive damages are damages that are there for punishment only. They're not necessarily connected to any sort of compensation, medical bills, property bills, and so on and so forth. So that's a very common negligence claim. And of course, is um, there are defenses to negligence. So if you hire a defense attorney, they're going to offer all the defenses. They're going to attack the prima facie case of the plaintiff. With the, the prima facie case is the, was there a duty? Did you fail to meet that duty? Was it the in fact cause? Are you, for policy reasons, supposed to be held liable for this? Were there damages if yes, 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 to all five of those things? The judge will say, okay, plaintiff, you have met your responsibility for giving me the five points of this case. Now, therefore, we're going to turn to the defendant. Defendant, can you attack any of those five areas, usually causation in some sort of way? Are you going to attack those five areas? Um, are there any defenses you want to raise? Uh, are there any questions of fact? If so, we go to the jury and then that's it. Uh, the judge decides and well, jury decides in that case. And so on and so forth, the judge is there to act as referee to make sure all the procedures right to say what evidence comes in, what evidence does not come in. 
because the evidence that does and does not come in can also shape the case in certain circumstances. So <laughs> that is, I just gave you the first semester, a 1L, um, 1L semester of torts 101 in, I don't know, five minutes. So if you went to law school, that's where you learn. And then you read cases to learn about all the stories that happened um, in this area. So you can learn all the nuances and areas of gray. And of course, these stories are dependent on the state, the year in which the, the case was raised, um, there's certain cases you read in law school where the same outcome would not happen today because the social political climate is different, the judge is different, the values are different, um, so on and so forth. So with that said, now moving to medical malpractice and education malpractice, this is a special duty. So in medical malpractice, you have a duty to act as a reasonable, prudent professional. So you have professional responsibilities um, and when you fail to meet those responsibilities and those responsibilities lead directly and um, as a matter of policy to the injury of another, you can be held liable. And that means you are owe them compensation, you owe them money, and so on and so forth. And the reason why medical malpractice, in my paper I go through the history, but the reason why medical malpractice is recognized as a claim is because doctors, you know, many reasons, but one big reason that I found was doctors held themselves internally accountable for their own conduct. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a split in medicine where there was a lot, you know, with the scientific, scientific revolution, with enlightenment, you had a split. In uh, allopathic medicine, the American Medical Association became really big because a lot of people were being injured by quack doctors, doctors using herbs, doctors using other means to, you know, cure certain ailments. And with the advent of like scientific knowledge, the American Medical Association was founded to actually help people um, heal their bodies in a way that was scientifically sound, at least to the science of that day. And so there was a split there. Um, American Medical Association to this day, they regulate the entry of students into the medical profession. Um, they're the ones who administer the MCAT all the way up to, you know, do you get a license and so on and so forth. I have even heard, don't quote me, but I do believe this is true. I was a pre-med student and when I was researching, you know, the American Medical Association, they regulate the number of doctors, the entry of doctors into the profession to make sure that there's not too many, not, not, um, too little. That's different from law school. Where the American Bar Association, uh, American Bar Association, does not regulate the number of attorneys who enter into the legal profession. So, fun fact of the day. So, in short, um, medical malpractice is also recognized as a claim in ancient in the ancient world. Of course, you had Hippocrates, um, where he said, "You know, do no harm," and it was just recognized that doctors have this special responsibility. Over the years, it became less on the outcome. Like, you know, doctor may not cure you. That doesn't mean they failed in their responsibility. They have a duty to adhere to the professional standards, to adhere to the general practice standards of the profession. And if you go outside those standards, so like in this day, a lot of holistic pr practitioners, they may go outside the accepted standards of the American medical um, practice. And that's where you know, things can get in the gray and you can be held liable for certain things because it was not reasonable 
or prudent under the circumstances. So that's medical malpractice. This is different from education malpractice because education first arose out of a social religious um, order and um, there is no legal duty to educate a child. Um, probably because as it developed, teachers saw that there are a lot of factors outside of their control, uh, be it the home, be it the socioeconomic status, the parentals of the children. And so that duty does not fall on the teacher, that duty falls on the parent. And there's no duty on the parent, um, you know, no child abuse, none of that. Uh, Harvard Law School, family law, we want to make sure that we are not abusing the child in a way that puts them so far behind the society that you have injured them. So that's kind of like the novel developing law, which I'll go over next week in homeschooling, which we have to be careful about because children, the new, the new wave is that children has rights too. And we can't as adults put our own issues on children to the extent where we're holding them back because of our personal issues with the school system. So, um, so anyway, that, that I go to say that in America in general, the development of education took um, form in different ways that reflected on parenting styles in the different colonies. So like in New England colonies, of course, you can just imagine, you know, Puritan America, Salem, Massachusetts, if we can imagine kind of the puritanical, um, you know, read your Bible. Uh, we don't want children. We want children to be educated because we want to drive the devil out of them. That sort of approach was taken in New England, um, whereas the southern and middle colonies saw education a little bit differently. So in the mid-Atlantic and the Chesapeake region, instead of having the community, so like in the Puritan America and New England states, it was the community. The, the state is in charge of education, where in the mid-Atlantic states, the Chesapeake settlers, um, education was a private matter, where the families had great discretion, there was no legal duty, they emphasized individualized instruction, discipline based on love and understanding. When I think about this, think about Pennsylvania, think about the Quakers. So you have like the hardliner Salem witch trials up in the north, and then you have the Pennsylvania Quaker mentality. And the same thing was very similar in the southern um, states. So in the 19, let's say 1970s, there were um, the first education malpractice claims. So the, they call this the romantic education critics. They pushed back against the education establishment and they started documenting how students were victims of teacher bias and gross educational malpractice. And they started bringing these claims to court because we had medical malpractice since ancient times. So they were trying to say, okay, teachers have a duty to teach the, the children. Teachers, it's kind of arising out of that whole like, you know, FDR social kind of, um, the government, the government is the one that's responsible for the adults and the children, not the other way around. Like government exists to, to, um, correct the ills of society versus the family exists to correct the ills of society anyway. So they started bringing these education malpractice claims to court because they felt the government was responsible for these children, but the courts rejected these claims for a matter of policy. You know, educators do not, educators do not have a legal duty 
to educate. And um, so people started taking different approaches. Um, some states amended their constitutions to include you know, certain provisions for education quality. Um, and doing this means that you have different local and state governments managing education. So you have a tapestry of education um, practices across the United States, which puts the control in the school board and in the hands of the local parents. And this can cause issues um, when you are in school districts where you have people of low educational attainment, uh, which is connected to socioeconomic status. So you get like, you know, when I talk about Houston, you have KDISD, the Woodlands, where you have people in public school regularly going to the Ivy Leagues. And then you have the next door, um, the next door district, Houston Independent School District, where you have people that are just like regularly into the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, for myself, I was part of Teach for America. We try to like balance the scales in this area, but it's only, you know, one piece of the puzzle. There are a lot of things to consider. So in short, um, because education and malpractice was not recognized, there's no legal duty. The principle of stare decisis, which means what has been decided stays decided unless there's a way compelling reason to undo it, which there has not been. Um, so as a matter of stare decisis, education malpractice is uh, not a recognized claim, even though attorneys still bring it. And I think I said in a podcast last week that you know, you shouldn't bring it. I, I would like to revise that statement. Bring all the claims, but just know, um, I say rule 11, right? Rule 11 civil procedure. Bring the claims, but just know education malpractice will likely not be recognized. But if you want to have it there just so it's not recognized, um, you can do that too. So um, I think I went over like the difference between medical malpractice and education malpractice is where like the accountability lies. In medical malpractice, we see the, the doctors being held accountable because it's within their zone of influence, their scope, um, versus in education, there are a lot of confounding factors, uh, be it the family and society and economic status. So that is why education malpractice is not a recognized claim there are other ways to hold teachers and school systems accountable um, and seek justice, especially in the public education system, in other ways. Um, starting with the teachers and then the school leaders. So that's the end, kind of like giving the context of uh, education claims in this country. So I'm just going to run through number two. What are some alternatives to the duty breach causation negligence framework that actually have been successful in the courts? And so in this section, there is, I did like, I literally pulled at the time every single case I could find in, on Lexis and Westlaw. And I went through every single case and I categorized them into kind of claims that have been recognized and in what situations. So here we go. There are three, um, no, four, four, and I'll go over the cases that kind of fall under each bucket. So if you're, you know, conflict 
high end, you want to bring litigation, you've exhausted your administrative strategies where you need to, you have exhausted all your, your nice letters to the teacher and the meetings to the principal and so on and so forth. There are four alternatives to education malpractice claims. Number one, general negligence. And you're like, how's the difference in the malpractice? So general negligence is different because the duty is not a professional duty, not a duty to teach or to educate a student. Um, the duty here is to act as a reasonable person under the circumstances. So it takes out the profession and just looks at you as a person and say, you person, did you act reasonably in this circumstance as a person in society? And so that's a very fine line we have to draw. So general negligence and then two, negligent misrepresentation. This is a very factual issue. Number three, negligent supervision, which happens a lot. Number four, medical malpractice. And um, let me see. Yeah, medical malpractice. And then we'll go to the statutory alternatives. So First Amendment stuff will fall under there because a lot of, I took First Amendment and also went on um, a lot of those cases were education in nature. So general negligence, sorry, I just lost my page. Okay, so general negligence is distinguished from education malpractice, even though you're still using the duty breach causation damages framework, where I will repeat once again, there's no professional duty. No, because you're a teacher, you have the duty to do this. It's not you as a teacher, it's you as a person. Not you and your job, it's you as a person in society. So where are some ways, it's a very small sliver of cases, where this has been recognized? So I, I have this here and I might just read through this um, so I don't misspeak. This is my paper from, what year was this? 2019, 2020. So I have not updated it since then. It's 2023, 24. So you may have cases that have come up, but probably generally this is still the same. Okay, so Connecticut, that's where we need to look at. Particularly, I think Yale University, yes. So specifically, the Connecticut courts have made a crack in the wall that is educational practice by distinguishing educator professional negligence from educators acting negligently in their professional setting. So I'm going to rephrase that again. Education malpractice is distinguished from negligence where edu um, educator professional negligence from educators acting negligently in their setting. Again, as a person. So I must have said this like three or four times just to make sure it's clear. Um, so in Connecticut, courts compensate student plaintiffs, meaning the person who brings the claim, that's a student, when the defendant educator did not properly manage the risks created by their conduct as a person. And so they make a factual inquiry. This is the only time where they make a factual inquiry into the severity of the student injury. And because the, it's focused on the injury, the result and not the duty, um, which is opposite from medical malpractice, injury and not the duty, then they are, in fact, able to overcome the bar on education malpractice. So this is in Connecticut. Uh, so if you're working in this area and you live in a different state, like this persuasive authority, but 
if you have a similar um, similar situation, I mean, re- raise the cases and be like, look, this is what they're doing in Connecticut for these reasons. Um, at least it would make your judge feel a little, little bit better, even though it's not binding on their court. So two cases that seem to contradict each other concerning the duty of an educator were heard by the Connecticut Supreme Court in 1963 and 66. So the first case, Kirshner versus Yale University, a student sought compensation for injuries sustained in woodworking class, resulting from the woodworking supervisor failure to instruct on how to use a woodworking tool. The lower court directed a verdict for the educator. However, the state Supreme Court reversed it and ordered a new trial because a reasonable jury could have found that the failure, um, there was failure in instruction. So this is a woodworking class. Um, There's a lot of procedure in here that I'm not gonna get into the weeds because procedure can turn the outcome of a case. Um, And like, what does this mean? Supreme Court reversed, that means Someone at the trial level, they made a decision for the educator, the educator won, in other words, but then um, the student appealed, meaning say, I don't agree with this decision. So they appealed to the next court and the court agreed. Ultimately, with the student, not that the student quote won, um, but they reversed it and ordered a new trial to give it to the jury and then likely they probably settled outside of that. Because, you know, people know it's expensive to go to trial. So then it gives the student bargaining chips. Even though they don't go to trial, they now have a bargaining tool and they likely settled for some sort of amount. Okay, so in 1966, the Connecticut Supreme Court heard Gupta versus New Britain General Hospital. This was a case where an academic medical center was liable to a resident physician who alleged improper dismissal arising from the breach of the student's residency agreement. So there is a substantial deference, meaning we give a lot of um, room for error with educational institutions because, you know, when you think about, like, freedom of speech, freedom to educate, there's, like, not official freedom to educate, but we want to encourage as a policy matter the exchange of diverse ideas that are not dangerous. So we kind of give educational um, institutions kind of a wide um, range to play with. So in Gupta versus New Britain General Hospital, they said that there was a failure to state a cause of action in education malpractice. However, unlike the previous woodworking case where they said that the woodworking instructor had a duty to educate on woodworking procedures and the student didn't harm themselves, the Gupta court said there is no legal duty for the educator. And when they say there's no legal duty, they just say, oh, it's educational malpractice not recognized. So we have to think about the differences of that. So when you think about like a woodworking case versus failure to instruct in a professional school, It's the actual physical injury that's driving the decision here. And sometimes, I know people don't like to hear this, but sometimes the judges, they do work from outcome backwards. Like they say, okay, like I want the student to be compensated because it should be compensated. So how can we make the case turn out in that way? Not supposed to do that, right? You're not supposed to do that, but it happens. And that just is what it is, what it is. So those are the general negligence claims 
And I think the key there is there was actually a physical injury in the board working class, like a physical, like clear injury versus the injury in the um, resident example was more of like a, ooh, like mental, intellectual, and emotional injury, right? So that's one, one um, way to get around education malpractice. The other, the bar in education malpractice, the other way to get around the bar of educational malpractice is to bring a misrepresentation claim. So misrepresentation is a misrepresentation of the facts. This is about recording, did not properly record something. And because you had a duty to keep, it's like a fiduciary, um, you're put in a position of trust and you failed in that position of trust that people reasonably rely on as a part of your job. And because you failed in that duty, then you should be held responsible for what went on. Um, so meeting the, element, the elements of negligent misrepresentation provides the plaintiff with a per se actionable injury, kind of for the reasons that I just stated. So some cases here, um, NCAA Division I course prerequisites. So the counselor, they had a duty to you know, represent the student's academic record. They also had a duty to counsel the students so they could be eligible for scholarships at the division one basketball level in college. And the student who had worked so hard for many, many years, his whole life, likely to get a scholarship to this school, lost the scholarship because of the counselor's negligence failure to um, advise the student properly in that situation. So here, again, um, the case, it went to the Iowa Supreme Court in this, and initially it was barred as an education malpractice claim, but the Iowa Supreme Court reversed it and remanded the decision to the trial court because this is a question of fact, right? And so when that, when they've remanded, that means they bring it back to the lower court and that likely becomes a negotiating tool for settlement, right? So usually they don't finish the case. They settle outside of court, um, pay me some money. Let's decide on this. Let's make it private and, and keep it moving. But when the judges do that, it, it helps. It doesn't put in the case law, like the student quote one, if you're to speak about it in like plain language terms, but at least the judge is helping one side or the other have more power when it comes to negotiating or settling. Um, and it's also here again, like in this case, it's not when you read the case, it's not so much a focus on the duty of the counselor, but it's like the severity of the injury. We want to redress that injury. So this is a division one athlete who lost their scholarship, could not play basketball for the school because of something that the counselor did. It was erroneous advice. And that's a huge, you know, that needed to be addressed somehow. And it was likely again, settled outside of the court. And there's another case that was, they brought using um, the basketball case, but it was a baseball case. And here, like, I don't know why they brought this, but whatever. This person didn't even make the baseball team yet. And then he was trying to make a claim that there is misrepresentation, but it's like, you weren't actually on the team. So 
That was just a case that was there. So that's the second way to get around education malpractice, the bar in education malpractice. The third way is to make a claim of negligent supervision. So here the duty is you had a duty to supervise in a certain way. You failed to supervise and because of your failure to supervise, it was the direct and proximate cause of injury to the plaintiff and therefore the plaintiff should be compensated for their injuries. So negligent supervision is a per se duty breach and um, recovery is possible when there is a physical injury. So obviously like the clearer the injury, the more likely you will be compensated. So physical injury versus like a mental emotional injury. Like in Texas, um, there's an intentional tort claim of intentional infliction of emotional distress. So in very conservative states, they're not gonna play with that claim, um, only in very predefined situations. Um, in Texas, it's employment situations that have to be like really, really, really egregious, egregious. Whereas in more liberal states, they're more willing to recognize that in the courts. So um, that, may, <laughs> that may help you decide where you want to live. There's pros and cons to both or where you, where you want to start your business. So that's a very good business, um, business topic because if you're an employer, if you know you're going to open yourself up to more emotional claims that are more in the gray, you might have more litigation expense versus being in a conservative state where it's black and white and people are not going to be bringing those claims. So it could keep your litigation costs low, um, just as a general matter. So negligent supervision, um, some cases are there. Oh, I even think I just put this in the notes. So like, um, oh, there is negligent supervision on college campuses, football coaches engage in harassment and assault resulting in physical injury. Uh, motion to dismiss was denied because questions of fact remained regarding whether the university had actual knowledge of, you know, kind of like hazing incident. So those um, supervision is happening more at the college level with like fraternities and sororities. So that's negligent supervision. Um, I've also seen that happen, you know, in, in K-12 cases where there was a duty to supervise and you failed to meet that duty. But those are pretty much clear. A student got injured. Um, let's just say a student wandered off campus and you didn't know where they were and then the student got injured and you had a duty to supervise and you failed in that duty. Like you could not explain where the student was. You didn't have proper precautions in place. Yeah, it's likely um, a failure and you will be held responsible for that. So the last way to get around education malpractice is to couch it in terms of medical malpractice. And these are with people with you know, special needs. So there's a case in New York, Snow versus New York, where a school misclassified a deaf student with a learning disability um, instead of a deaf student with a physical disability. So because they misclassified them with a learning disability, basically SPED, when it was just physical in nature, they lost years of education because they were in SPED, they were in slower classes instead of being with their normal pace classes. They were able to recover a judgment of 1.5 million in that case. Alternatively, there was a case, Hoffman versus Board of Education of the City of New York. There was a student with a speech impairment who was misclassified and lost 11 years of instructional time. However, he was um, not able to recover for that. Um, and they just said it was alleged education malpractice. So uh, when you look at kind of the difference there, 
I forget that case. I should go back. I wonder, I'm wondering why I didn't put like, what was the, the turning point here? Um, yeah, so the, the case, I, I should probably make a note to go back on that. So Snow versus New York, and then compare that to Hoffman versus Board of Education of the city of New York. I'm looking at what were the years. I have my notes here. No, 1983 versus 1979. Oh, Hoffman came first. Okay. Hoffman came first, then Snow. So maybe the Hoffman court was just not evolved enough at that time. Okay, there's another um, area, so ADHD. An area where using medical malpractice to avoid the bar on educational malpractice could be helpful in ADHD situations. So in Rich versus Kentucky Country Day School, educators misdiagnosed a student who had ADHD. They lost educational time. The student brought an education malpractice claim, which hopefully you know by now was, it's going to be barred. You can bring it just to have it barred. Um, however, they refiled as a medical malpractice claim. They made analogies to Snow, a case where they recovered 1.5 million, where they had a misdiagnosis of the, of the deaf student. They made the analogies to Snow, um, and then the court said, okay, they may be compensated for their injury. And I, I don't think that case actually finished out, they probably settled out of court when they saw, it's like, you're looking at snow and you're like, $1.5 million. Okay. No, we need to settle this outside is likely what happened. Okay. So those are the four alternatives to education malpractice. Big takeaway, education malpractice claim is barred as a matter of policy, historical, social, political reasons inform that when you compare it to medical malpractice. Um, however, you can still bring it. It will be barred, but maybe Society politics can change, but you have that big kind of hurdle of stare decisis to get over. But at the Supreme Court, stare decisis is sometimes, you know, overridden. But, you know, as the attorney, Rule 11, you can bring it. Um, it is a honest claim that you're bringing on there, but you need to bring other things too because it likely is not going to work. And there are four alternatives. So general negligence, not focusing on the duty of the professional, but focusing on the person you have the misrepresentation in counseling situation, misrepresentation of facts, uh, failure to supervise. And you can also bring it as a medical malpractice claim, especially for your special needs students. Okay. So those are the edu education malpractice alternatives in common law, which means not in a statute, not in a, a, a piece of legislation that's passed at the state or federal level. So now we turn to the statutory alternatives. Now we're hitting the Supreme Court education cases. So let's start with the 14th Amendment. Um, some of the most notable education cases have been brought under the 14th Amendment equal protection and due process clauses. So I'm not gonna go through all of that, but I will just read here, you know, what is the equal protection and due process clauses, 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. There are two sorts of due process, procedural due process. Did you go through the proper procedures? Did you have the opportunity to be heard? Or did you receive notice of what is the claim against you? Um, due process of law. You also have substantive due process. 
where those are your, your typical civil rights cases, um, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. So we all get equal protection, it is what it says it is, equal protection of the law, no matter what race, class, gender, you know, historically, um, when you have historical discrepancies in the treatment of people, let's just say, you know, we have African-Americans in the United States versus Caucasian-Americans when there's a historical discrepancy. And this is like very basic. There's a lot of nuance here. This is like constitutional law one one But when you have discrepancies in that, because um, the 14th Amendment decided to remedy those and make a claim for people so that we could balance things out in the present moment. So there are fundamental rights um, that are worthy of the highest protection under the 14th Amendment. So constitutional uh, fundamental rights, um, if the right is enumerated, said expressly in the Constitution, this is a right, um, and it has to be meet two conditions. So one, it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So what does that mean? These are Supreme Court words. So implicit in the concept of ordered liberty means that it's just, it's like natural law. Like any human being would say, hey, like this is this is a fundamental right. Of course, there's, when you think about the abortion issue, right? Like, or the gay marriage issue, right? So we disagree on what's fundamental or not. Um, and they usually use this prong, to protest implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, liberty or deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. And this is where you get the big block because when you think about, let's say, uh, gay marriage, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, you know, gay marriage is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. It is a, um, a more recent event, or at least like on the outside, more recently accepted. But then, you know, when you think about like, can you enter into a marriage contract, um, right to privacy, those, they just reframe it a different way to allow um, the case, so like an Obergefell, um, that would be the case. So we have um, people trying to say education is a fundamental right, is a fundamental right to have someone to be educated because it's essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. So basically saying, if you're uneducated in society, you're not going to be able to function. Therefore, our schools need to like educate um, to a certain level. So this is San Antonio Independent School District versus San Antonio. Here, the Supreme Court declined to elevate education to the level of a fundamental right. And they relied on the historical lack of recognition at common law. However, they did recognize that wealth tied to a fundamental right. And see, they, these are getting into constitutional issues. They're like beyond the scope of this podcast. I'm just going to tell you what the court says. Wealth tied to a fundamental right may, keyword may, rise to the level. So not just may, but has to be of a certain level of a suspect class for purposes of equal protection. Meaning, if, meaning that this is a huge maybe if, maybe, 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 um, if the wealth is so, the discrepancy in economic status is so great, we may not be equally protecting different classes of people. However, in that case, 
it was settled law, it is settled law, that education is not a fundamental right. However, attorneys, education attorneys, still try to distinguish their cases from San Antonio in hopes of establishing education as a federally protected fundamental right. However, in my paper, and this this is an area, you know, we're like in the gray, gray, gray now because this is evolving law, um, present day law. So I argue in my comment that this is a futile, futile mission. I mean, you can go for it, that's fine. But I say, I'm just gonna read why I wrote in the paper. This attempt is futile for three reasons. And by this attempt, this attempt to establish education as a fundamental right is a non-starter for three reasons. Number one, the current and likely future composition of the Supreme Court would most likely co-sign agree to a textualist argument declaring that education is not a fundamental right. So what does that mean? Textualist argument means that we have a whole bunch of conservatives on the court and they're going to interpret the law in the most black and white letter form. Textualist means I'm going to read and I'm going to interpret in a very heavy handed black and white way, whereas a more liberal approach is more in the gray. So we all know the Supreme Court is likely more conservative, so they're gonna go in that direction. Um, the Supreme Court being conservative also generally thinks that family, family and church are the ones who are responsible for the moral, moral and character development of students, children, and therefore the school system, the government should not be held responsible because the burden is on the families. Um, so that's number one. Number two, federal control of education is not deeply rooted in American history, right? Education is a local issue. It's a state issue. And that's how it's like very established and set up because education, the management of families is a local family issue. And when education is failing at the local level, we have to look to ourselves and the families. I'm just going to say it straight up because that's my conclusion. But that is also how our government is arranged because the history of our government, um, you had a whole bunch of wealthy, well-privileged families. That's how they did. They educated their own families, and then they all got together and formed schools. And that is what they expect other people to do as well. Unless they have the government in place and they have all these nice systems in place to help us out. They have the public education system in place as a way to give us the tools that only once in a long time ago the privileged people had. But it's up to us as people, as individuals, to also learn these things and to apply them to our own families. So that's number two reason why education will likely not be recognized as a fundamental right. Number three... Um, state-sponsored education is not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Ordered liberty, in other words, and these are these are Supreme Court language, right? State-sponsored education, meaning public education, is not implied, implicit, naturally there in the concept in the idea of ordered, organized government, institutional liberty, freedom. So I say, in other words. Um, it's not central. What does, what does all that mean? So they also have defined it as it's not central to your personal dignity, your personal autonomy, meaning you don't need an education to have dignity. You don't need an education to have autonomy, a state-sponsored education at that. And I take, for example, and that's absolutely true. My grandmother, she grew up um, in France during World War II. I think she had a sixth grade education. But if you spoke to her, you wouldn't even know. You thought she'd go to college. 
So it's not central to her, her dignity as a person. It's not central to her autonomy as a person. She lived quite well and always had what she needed. And she did not have um, education past the sixth grade. So for those three reasons, um, you know, also having the government give you education to a certain level is not essential to the exercise of your speech rights, your First Amendment freedoms, and it is not essential to the exercise of voting rights. So in, in my paper, I have here like all the, all the footnotes, right? It goes to Kant, like all the philosophical footnotes, all, all the cases, all the things, it could, Martin Luther, like these are the philosophical underpinnings of our constitution. And that's why, you know, bless the attorneys who are trying to work uh, education as a fundamental right. But you know, when you read the papers, when you know the history, you know the philosophy, you can still do it by all means, please do. You know, it's good. It's a good news story. However, uh, let's focus on other things that uh, will likely be more successful, which, you know, side note, that's how I entered into the state planning and so on and so forth. So it's like interesting because I am just realizing now I wanted to start here for cancer season because um, I was like, OK, let me just put this in the past. This is my law review comment paper. I did a lot of research. I was pregnant with Gabby. I had Gabby. So it's a very Cancerian paper. And, um, but I'm realizing that like, this actually also is the basis where I realized this plus my study in environment, environmental law, it was these two things during my law school experience that led me into estate planning. And my natal chart, but my natal chart was <laughs> wasn't after the fact. <laughs> confirmation bias, baby. My natal chart is confirmation bias, but this was this is the real deal. Okay, so um, I go on to say here that although education is not a fundamental right, a conservative a conservative court. So you have to think about your judges and who you are appealing to. So in a conservative court, they could be persuaded by right of conscience. Okay, they like conscience, uh, freedom of belief, freedom of religion, freedom of mindset. Um, right to conscience is deeply rooted in American history. Hashtag 1776 and our founders. Um, it's also implicit in the concept of ordered liberty and therefore fundamental because it checks those two boxes. So matters of conscience, um, they also include the capacity for private judgment and when we think about, you know, the abortion issue, like these are matters of conscience. And I, my write on paper to the Houston Law Review was actually how the Supreme Court de determines different matters. I should pull that paper out, too, because that was an interesting paper. The Supreme Court, I did a, an analysis of their cases and how, like, the liberal court will literally change their argument when it's an issue like they like, like environmental law. Um, they will... They will run the conservative argument when it's a liberal issue. And, and the conservatives do this too. They will run a liberal argument when it wins a conservative issue. So it just comes to who's in the court and the vote. So, um, you know, America was founded on the premise of freedom, believe acting in accordance to the beliefs, hashtag 1776, the right of conscience is deeply rooted in our history. So, um, Conscience rights, so what are they? They lie at the intersection of individualism and collectivism. So it's, um, you know, in the middle. They have previously been addressed by the Supreme Court, 
and I have Meyer versus Nebraska. You can look up that case, 1923. So concerning individualism, the Supreme Court has held that parents have a fundamental right to control the upbringing and education of their children. So that is, that's Meyer, right? You have the fundamental right to control the upbringing and education of their children, but this is where I'm going to kind of put this in the gray next week because this is what Harvard Law School is, is trying to um, make more nuanced because it's like, where does that end for parents and where does that begin for children? Do children have rights and so on and so forth? But that's that's up and coming. That's This is like cutting, <laughs> cutting edge law. Um, and then concerning collectivism, the Supreme Court has decided that citizen participation is the purpose of education. So having a new fundamental right of conscience could be relevant to cases where hold, they're holding the tension of these two ideas. So the civic goals of education um, and an individual's right of conscience. So I wrote an example here. I'm just gonna read it because it's been a while and I'm gonna just read what I wrote. I say a fundamental right of conscience could apply in instances where there exists low quality public education that provokes a parent to choose alternative forms of schooling, such as homeschooling or private schooling. The court in San Antonio, while failing to recognize education as a fundamental right, did recognize that fundamental rights when tied to wealth could receive heightened scrutiny under the 14th Amendment. So if low-income parents, as a matter of conscience, cannot control the upbringing of their child because alternative schooling is cost-prohibitive, then there may be a viable constitutional challenge alleging discrimination on the basis of wealth and subsequent state failure to provide equal protection of its citizens. So that's my brainstorm for what could be. Um, alternatively, the fundamental right of conscience can be a viable path forward in cases where schools make curricular decisions implicating moral beliefs without providing notice and the opportunity for parent comment and, comment and action. So I saw this happen in my school district, my public school district, literally recently, um, issue about transgender bathrooms and the Office of um, Civil Rights, the Office of Education, Department of Education has already given extensive guidance on this. Uh, just pull the PDF, school board and read it. I actually watched the school board meeting and I was like, did they even read this document? I mean, literally, this has been put out by our federal government. Can you all please school board just read the document because a lot of your questions are already answered there. But education is locally driven. So if they didn't read it, they didn't read it. They rather end up on the news and that is okay too. So it's like, um, yeah, it is what it is. So the fundamental right of conscience could be a viable path. Oh yes, curricular decisions where moral beliefs are implicated, where you don't have notice and comment. Um, courts have heard cases with these facts but have barred recovery. So I gave some examples of cases here and then kind of another brainstorm uh, if you use the fundamental right of conscience. So this is a huge brainstorm because right of conscience is not a fundamental right. Um, but I'm saying if it was, here are things that it could open up. So in Vogel versus, um, I could pronounce the name, Academy of Women, a school implemented a moral curriculum without parent consultation regarding interpersonal relationships. So the parents were not notified that um, they had this curriculum, there's no notice to comment, no school meeting, no whatever, and they are unable to control the upbringing of their child because they had no knowledge of this. 
um, reasonable knowledge. So the curriculum included what was in this curriculum, an activity regarding improper touching without parental consent. The parents alleged that the school had recklessly modified and taught the program to three to a three and one half year old. So teaching this curriculum to a very young child who doesn't have the mental capability to probably process that. Um, this resulted in damage to the father's reputation, disruption to his family life, psychiatric treatment, medical expenses, lost wages, and employment opportunities. So um, the appellate court held that the district court, the lower court, did not abuse its discretion. These are all procedural. Like, what is abuse of discretion? You can only overturn cases in certain in certain instances um, when the trial judge, the lower court, made like pretty much an egregious error. Um, abuse of discretion is one of those areas. 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 I'm getting tired, girl. It's a long episode. Thanks for being here. I hope if you're still here, I hope I hope it's interesting um, to dismiss the father's claim on summary judgment. So it's like all these legal terms, right? To dismiss, that means to get rid of the father's claims on summary judgment. Um, no question of material fact, uh, therefore no trial, because claims of education malpractice are non-cognizable. So again, here it wraps around to the education malpractice because it's just it's kind of like what they say when they want to get rid of the case for whatever reason. However, if there was a right of conscience, they could say, you know, maybe the school should have given notice um, to the parents. And I think most school districts do, but you just, some school districts, you just never know, especially in these rural districts. So there's another case, Aubrey versus School District of Philadelphia, where a health curriculum failed to obtain parental consent to discuss, quote, controversial emotional and privacy-oriented material with a high school senior. The students and the parents objected to the material. The student then failed the course and brought suit seeking compensation for injuries resulting from her delayed high school graduation. So you see here the injuries, the injuries are getting, um, you know, not only did she fail the course, but then now she can't graduate and likely not college and all these things. The Aubrey court dismissed a complaint for failure to state a cause of action because they brought it as education malpractice. I remember reading this case, I was like, oh my God, like this attorney should have brought like so many other claims, but you bring the claim once, that's it. Plaintiff could not be compensated. Um, however, if there's a right of conscience, it said, you know, she would have much had, had a much stronger claim. So that is the 14th Amendment, kind of like just ideas there, fundamental right to education, uh, not available, see San Antonio. However, you could, and this is just my brainstorm, establish a right of conscience, maybe fundamentally. So the next area is Title um, Seven discrimination. So in absence of having a fundamental right of conscience, and there's a statutory claim to avoid the common law bar and uh, claims of education malpractice, parents have sued public school districts alleging intentional discrimination on the basis of race, sex, and religion, when their beliefs have been violated and teaching practices were implicated. So in Fair Education Santa Barbara versus Santa Barbara Unified School District, an activist parent group filed suit using Title VII to ensure their children were able to attend public school in a non-discriminatory setting. Uh, they alleged that the district engaged in unlawful discriminatory conflict, uh, conduct when it attempted to indoctrinate staff and students with a warped view of the world, where racism can only be perpetrated by white people 
and where the success of students in so-called privileged groups is due solely to their unearned access to resources. These are all quotes. The district court denied the plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction. That means the plaintiff brought a claim, they brought a motion to say, hey, we need to stop this curriculum right now before we hear the case. The district court denied it, um, but they allowed the plaintiff to amend the complaint to address why they had constitutional standing. So constitutional standing, it's basically saying, what's your injury? What's your injury? And how is this related? Um, then they voluntarily dismissed the case to avoid potential adjudication on the merits. So you can only bring a case once. And once you bring it, that's it. And so they dismissed the case because they probably, probably needed more time to think and figure out their arguments. So they... Um, I think that this case, I'm like trying to, to skim this so I get the key points. So here it's again, like, is there a procedural due process? So should parents have a greater opportunity to be involved in the curriculum design, especially on more controversial matters? And I think like a lot of school districts have actually, you know, just responded to this by yes, um, allowing parents to see this. Um, but on the other hand, like, Schools don't want to deal with parents getting in the way of the curriculum because it would affect the operations of the school. And they say that these things should be resolved by the political and social pro processes, right? So this is kind of, I don't know, and this is the end of getting to the end of the paper. This is kind of where education lies today. Like, who is responsible for the education of the students? And in conclusion, um, my conclusion is what I do for, for my practice, estate planning. We need to get the family right. We need to get the community right. We need to get the health right, the wellness, the mental health, the physical health, the emotional health, the mental health of the community. And the school is the product of that. And the behavior in the school is the product of that. And when I was in Teach for America, and I understand why they said this, like, we could never kind of go to our coach or to go to anybody and say, oh, it's what's happening in the home. Oh, it's the child's lack of nutrition. We could never say any of that. We would be quickly directed to say, like, what is in your locus of control? So we could focus, like, on our curriculum and how to do the best we could with what we had. And a lot of teachers got burnt out because... It's kind of like you're on a hamster wheel. You know that the problem lies in the home and the problem lies outside your control, um, but you're still in the school and still kind of assessed on results and assessed on your performance like these things are in your control. And then you have coaches coming at you and saying, how can you address this student? Um, and some coaches are better than others. So like, you know, some coaches are not going to take that as an excuse and they're going to keep pushing you. And that's kind of where you get like in the education system, a lot of teachers leaving because it's hard to operate in a system like that. And so I think that's, you know, I left education for many reasons, but that's probably one of the huge reasons why I left. I remember on the day when I left my job um, at Yes Pro Public Schools, First thing I said to my manager, supervisor, was she asked me, you know, to open up the conversation with why. 
know, I, I, I didn't even plan this response. I didn't even know what I was going to say. All I said was like, I just philosophically disagree. That's why, that's why it came out of my mouth. I just philosophically disagree. And I was like, I can't be here anymore. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Maybe she understood. Maybe she didn't understand. It's water in the bridge at this point. But it's just like, <sighs> yeah. And I kind of, that's that started my whole like, quote, burnout journey, which is a subject of my book coming out in February 2024. Um, but it was like, oh, God, like. Lord Jesus, what is happening to this world? And I had to first heal myself. And I, that's like the whole point of my book. It's just like, I wasn't out there like trying to fix the issues out there, but then I had to like turn in and realizing that the issues out there were affecting me in here. And that I had to look at myself and my own ancestry and my own lineage and my own family and like um, heal, address, integrate, transform with the help of many, many people, which will be in my book coming out next year. Um, all those things until I wrapped me back around to law school, education law, environmental law, and then finally state planning and lots of divine interventions along the way. And it's just like, you know, <laughs> I say this is the beginning of book two because now we're in, in the contemporary contemporaneous moment moment like what am I doing now well I'm an estate planning attorney involved in my local church school system and so on and so forth and so we have to see and hopefully this book you know I'm just sharing my story with other people in case people agree and um, they want to do it in their own local community too and it's not just the schools and the churches it's also the land how are we using the land it's the environment part how are we using the land um, and so on and so forth, which just kind of like maybe that's what I'll also talk about Virgo season, because before I went into estate planning, um, education, when I studied education law in high school, in law school to kind of wrap up my Teach for America experience and what I learned there. And that product of that wrap up is this paper that I went over, generally speaking, in this podcast episode. And then I was like, okay, I'm done with education. I wanted to pick an area to focus in, and it was environmental law. And then I remember when I was in my seminar classes, just thinking, you know, I hear all the debates and all the sides. And I'm just like, well, number one, if people had more power, they'd be in a seat to make these decisions. Um, how do people get more power, resources, organizing their resources? Well, if we organize our resources, it'd probably be less plastic in the ocean. And then I was just like, it's really estate planning. Now I was thinking about the um, wealth and preservation of wealth over generations. How is privilege created? Well, the estates code, look at the Texas estates code. That's how privilege is created right there. People who use those laws and people who do not. And then, you know, I ended up having a baby in law school. I was offered a job, um, almost offered a job. That's a long story at a big law firm. Uh, defending corporations and climate change, environmental oil and gas litigation. And I decided not to, and this is a very Cancerian topic. Um, I think everything was working out, except she could sense my hesitation. And also, you know, she knew I had a baby in law school. I remember the last thing she said to me was kind of like checking me out. She was like, you know, I don't have dinner with my kids. So my clients can have dinner with theirs. 
I just looked at her and I think both of us knew at the time conversation was over. I mean, the relationship probably worked out otherwise, but that was a non-starter for me. No, I'm not doing that. I will be with my kids when I need to be with them. I'm going to be at their, their sports, their music, gymnastics, whatever. I'm like tearing up right now. Cause I just, the thought of like, not being, even my daughter, she's like three years old. Just the thought of not being able to take her to gymnastics and not being there to pick her up from school. Like I, I just, I knew from a very young age, and this is taking me back to like my elementary days. Like when I decided, Oh, when I was in kindergarten, what I dressed up for Halloween was bride. It's like, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids. I'm going to like have this perfect life and whatever. whatever. And um, I knew that when I had kids, whenever I had kids, that that would be a priority and I would sacrifice other things for that. And so what I sacrificed on the altar was, you know, ego, a big law position, having, being on law review and being the only person not having a job after law school. That was, that was an ego defeating move. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, I'll just have my second baby take the bar exam and see what happens and that's when the opportunity to write the book came up and so I wrote the book I won the competition and I found another mentor state planning and here I am state planning attorney making my own schedule making my own um money and yeah so it's getting late it's 9 31 p.m so this is a long episode because I didn't want to divide this into multiple episodes but hopefully this gives you know some starting point for if you have if you're seeking justice and compensation in the education system here's kind of like the lay of the land and you know in the future maybe i'll parse out some of these topics individually and go more in depth but that's it next week starting schools private public homeschooling issues um pregnancy discrimination and then we'll see how the rest of that goes from there so thank you all for tuning in and for being here for this long episode. Oh, you see, I like, I haven't looked at my camera in a while. I like pulled it up. I'm like, oh, it's so dark here now. Um, but yeah, have a wonderful evening and I will see you next time.